When one takes a broad view of the myths that the gods of Mesopotamia told about their lives, the distinctive personalities of the half-brothers Enki and Enlil come into sharper focus in all aspects, including how they conducted themselves sexually. It was previously mentioned that in addition to his official spouse, Antu, Anu maintained a sizable harem of concubines. In fact, the mother of Ea Enki, Anu's firstborn son, was one such concubine. Uruk, also known as Eric in the Bible, was a special city that was constructed around the time that the gods Anu and Antu paid a state visit to Earth, around the year 4000 BC. During his stay, Anu developed a strong affinity for Enlil's granddaughter, who came to be known as Inanna, which means Anu's beloved. There are hints in the text that Anu's loving went beyond that of a typical grandfatherly relationship. And with regard to these characteristics, Enki, and not Enlil in any way, inherited his father's genes. Only one of Enki's six sons, Marduk, has a mother who has been positively identified as Enki's official spouse, Damki, Darnay. Lady, who to earth came. The mothers of Enki's other five sons are mostly unnamed and could have been concubines or, see below, chance encounters. Marduk is the only son of Enki's six sons who has had his mother positively identified. Enlil, on the other hand, who had a son by Ninma back on Nibiru when they were both unmarried, had two sons by his spouse, Ninlil, and none by any other woman. Enki and Ninhasak. A paradise myth is the name that its first translator, Samuel N. Kramer, gave to a lengthy Sumerian text that describes Enki's numerous sexual encounters with his half-sister Ninhasag Ninma in futile attempts to have a son by her, followed by his sexual encounters with the female offspring of those liaisons. The text was originally translated into English by Samuel N. Kramer. In order to get Enki to stop, a medical officer named Ninhasag had to inflict him with excruciating illnesses. These stories about Enki, more often than not, praised the powerful penis of the god. Enki had no problem with members of the family having sexual encounters with one another. A lengthy text that discusses Inanna's trip to Eridu in order to obtain the vital me from Enki describes how her host attempted to get her drunk and seduce her, but he was unsuccessful in both of these endeavours. In another text, which details a journey from Eridu to the Abzu, it is related that Enki was successful in having sexual relations with Ereshkigal, the older sister of Inanna, who would later marry Enki's son Nergal while they were on their boat. When these adventures resulted in the birth of offspring, young gods and goddesses were born. For demigods to be born, the intercourse had to be with humans from Earth, and there was no shortage of that either. We can begin with the stories of the gods that were told in Canaan, where El, also known as the Lofty One or Kronos, in the mythology of the Eastern Mediterranean, was at the top of the pantheon. The tales contain a text that is referred to as the birth of the gracious gods. It describes how El came across two earthling women who were bathing while he was strolling along the beach. The two women were enchanted by the size of his penis and had sexual relations with him, which resulted in the birth of two sons named Shahar, which means dawn, and Shalem, which means complete or dusk. The Canaanite text refers to the two individuals as gods, but demigods more accurately describe their status. 
An important epithet title of El was Abadam, which can be translated as Father of Man, but also means Father of Adam, which when taken in its literal sense may mean exactly that, the progenitor and actual father of the individual who is referred to in the Bible as Adam, in contrast to earlier references to the Adam species. This brings us right up to Adapa, the legendary figure who served as the model for men in Mesopotamian literature. A pre-Diluvian demigod who was known as the Man of Eridu, Adapa was also known as the wisest of men. Enki's son, of whom he was openly proud, whom he appointed as chief of household in Eridu, and to whom he granted wide understanding, all manner of knowledge, including mathematics, writing, and craftsmanship. He was tall and large in size. He was most easily identified as a son of Enki. It is possible that Adapa, the first wise man to be documented, was, in fact, the enigmatic Homo sapiens sapiens, who first appeared on the human scene around 35,000 years ago as Cro-Magnon man, in contrast to the more primitive Neanderthals. There is no conclusive evidence to support the theory that Adapa was the actual individual referred to as Adam in the Bible, as opposed to the Adam species. But this has not stopped people from theorizing about it. I, for one, wonder if he could have been the Enmilu Anna of the pre-diluvial Sumerian king lists, which is a name that can be translated as Enki's Man of Heaven, because the most memorable and unique event that concerned Adapa was his celestial journey to visit Anu on Nibiru. This was a trip that Adapa took. In the first part of the story, The Tale of Adapa, the author transports the reader to a period that occurred very long ago, at the start of things, when Ea and Enki were involved in the process of creation. During those times and throughout those years, Ea was a wise being who was created by Eridu to serve as a model for humans. The story of Adapa had a profound impact on Mesopotamian culture and literature for a very long time. Even in later Babylon and Assyria, the phrase wise as Adapa was used to describe someone who possessed a high level of intelligence. However, another facet of the Adapa legend in which Ea Enki deliberately granted one divine blessing while withholding another divine blessing was also true. Attribute inherited from this model of a man, despite the fact that it was his own son. The wide understanding was something he helped him perfect, and wisdom was something he passed on to him. Knowledge was the only thing he had bestowed upon him. Everlasting life was something else entirely. Anu made the request to see Adapa as soon as word reached Nibiru about the unusually wise human being. Enki complied with the request and then made Adapa take the way to Anu and to heaven he went up. However, Enki was worried that Adapa, while he was on Nibiru, might be given the bread of life and the water of life, which would allow him to achieve the same level of longevity as the Anunnaki. Enki gave Adapa the appearance of being wild and aggressive in order to prevent this from happening. Enlil dressed him in shabby clothing and misleadingly instructed him. When you stand before Anu, people will offer you bread. It is the food of death, so you must refuse to eat it. They will offer you water, but it will cause you to die if you drink it. They will hand you an article of clothing. You should put it on. They will offer you oil. Anoint yourself with it as they instruct you to. 
Enki issued a word of caution to Adapa, telling him, You must not neglect these instructions. Hold fast to that which I have spoken. Following his ascent along the Way of Heaven, which was guarded by the gods Dumuzi and Gizida, Adapa arrived at the gate of Anu. He was brought into Anu's presence. He was presented with the opportunity to consume the bread of life, just as Enki had predicted, but out of fear of passing away, he declined the offer. He was given the opportunity to drink the water of life, but he turned it down. Instead, he accepted the clothes and the oil that were presented to him, and he anointed himself with the oil. Anu, who was perplexed and perplexed, asked him, Come now, Adapa, why did you not eat, and why did you not drink? Adapa then responded by saying, Ea, my master, commanded me, You shall not eat, you shall not drink. After receiving the response that infuriated Anu, she dispatched an emissary to Enki with the demand that he provide an explanation. Because this portion of the inscribed tablet is so badly damaged that it cannot be read, we are in need of Enki's response. In spite of this, the tablet makes it abundantly clear that Adapa, after being deemed worthless by Anu, was exiled to Earth, where he established a line of priests who were skilled in the treatment of illness. He was the son of the god Enki Adapa and was extremely wise and intelligent. However, he still passed away because he was a mortal. The academic debate regarding whether the figure referred to in the Bible as Adam was actually Adapa has not yet been resolved. When recounting the story of the two trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of knowing, from which Adam ate, and the tree of life, from which he was barred, it is evident that the biblical narrator had the story of Adapa in mind when writing the account. The warning that was given to Adam and Eve, the day you shall eat thereof, surely you shall die, is almost a direct quote from the warning that Enki gave to Adapa. Concerns were also voiced by the deity to co-workers who were not identified in Genesis 3 24 about the possibility that Adam might consume fruit from the tree of life and Yahweh Elohim spoke these words, Behold, Adam has attained human status and is now fully aware of both good and evil. What would happen if, at this point, he extended his hand and took something from the tree of life, and they consumed food and lived forever? In consequence, Yahweh Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim and the flaming sword that revolved to guard the way to the tree of life. We do not know whether Enki's warning to Adapa that he must stay away from the water and bread of life lest he perish was a sincere one, or whether it was part of the deliberate decision to bestow upon Adapa wisdom but not everlasting life. However, we do know that the warning that told Adam and Eve that they would surely die if they ate from the tree of knowing was not accurate. They were told by the serpent that God is a liar. It is an episode that needs to be brought up in conversation whenever the topic of immortality is brought up. Enmeluana is placed at the top of the WB62 king list, followed by Ensipaziana, whose name means Shepherd Lord, Heavenly Life, and Enmedurana, Enmeduranki, whose story is analogous to that of the biblical Enoch. The Mesopotamian sources then give various and ambiguous names for the biblical Lamech with the Ubar Tutu in the Epic of Gilgamesh being the most certain of them, and consequently 
probably the Obax of Berossus. The only mention of the ancestor of Ziusudra or Utnapishtim that is known to exist is in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Other than this, nothing is known about the ancestor. Was he a god or the unfortunate Lamech, who questioned Noah's lineage and wondered whether he came from gods? The so-called transgressions committed by the Igigi, also known as the Watchers, which caused Enlil to feel such anger were, in point of fact, initiated by none other than Enki himself. They gave birth to a large number of demigod offspring, as is made clear by the various sources, but only a small number of those offspring are named and listed here. Were these the incidents in which Enki, who went by the epithet N.me, personally took part? The conundrum of patriarch demigods in pre-Diluvian times continues all the way up to Noah and the Deluge, but the mystery of our ancestral seed does not end there. The Bible states, and Mesopotamian sources confirm, that the intermarriage that started before the Deluge continued also after that. Soon, we will discover that other gods and goddesses, as well as mortals, were eager intermarriage partners in the times after the flood. Words and the Meanings They carry readers of transliterated Sumerian texts might find a small d prefixing the name of a deity, such as in the cases of Denki and Denlil. It is referred to as a determinative and establishes that the name is that of a god or goddess. The letter D is a shortcut for the number two. Word with the syllables Dingir. Its name, which literally translates to righteous ones of the rocket ships, was illustrated in the form of a rocket with a command module. For more information, see the sidebar titled The Land of Eden on page 82. Simplified, the designation of God Divine was rendered by a star sign that was read An and evolved further to a cross-like wedge mark. It was read Lu in Akkadian, i.e. E, Babylonian, Assyrian, from which the singular El in Canaanite or Hebrew and the plural Elohim in the Bible were derived. This author envisions God, with a capital G, as a universal cosmic creator of all, who acts through emissaries known as gods with a small g. While explaining that in the tale of Adam's creation, etc., the Elohim of the Bible were the Sumerian Anunnaki, this author, as unambiguously stated in Divine Encounters, envisions God with a capital GG. The fact that the Elohim and the Anunnaki, who are referred to as gods with a small g, exist is evidence that their creator, who is referred to with a capital G, does in fact exist. Moses was given an explanation of what the all-encompassing divine name Yahweh meant, and he was told that it meant Eheya Asha Eheya. I will be whoever I am. In one situation, God could be act through Enki, and in another situation, God could be through Enlil, and so on. When the Hebrew text uses the term Elohim, it refers to the so-called gods of the Anunnaki, and when the Bible uses the term Yahweh Elohim, it should be understood to mean when Yahweh acted as or through one of the Elohim. The concept of olam is one example of a biblical word that I have interpreted in a way that is not conventionally accepted. It is commonly translated as forever, everlasting, or of old. However, olam, which stems from the root verb that means to hide, 
could mean a physical, hidden place of God, as in Psalm 93 2, Thou art from Olam, the hidden place, the planet Nibiru, which is not visible to the naked eye. I wrote about this possibility in my book. On this planet, there once lived giants. In those days, as well as in the times that followed, giants were living on Earth. The Bible, with just a few, by now familiar, words, highlighted above, extended the pre-diluvial epic events involving the demigods to post-diluvial days. One could even say that it moved from the prehistoric and legendary ages to historical times. The reader should already be aware that the word giants does not appear in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, but rather the word neftlim. They should also be aware that I was the student who questioned the teacher about his explanation of giants rather than the those who have come down, meaning. In retrospect, I realized that the teacher did not invent the giants interpretation and that there had to be a reason why the scholars assigned by King James the Fern of England. To translate the Hebrew Bible used the term giants. They made use of older translations of the Hebrew Bible, such as the Vulgate, which was written in Latin and dates back to the 4th and 6th centuries AD. They also made use of an earlier Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint, which was written in Alexandria, Egypt, in the 3rd century BC. And in both of those early translations, the word Nephilim is translated as Gigantes. Why? There are several different interpretations of who Arba is that can be found in more contemporary English translations of this statement. According to the translation provided by the New English Bible, this passage reads as follows. In the past, the name of Hebron was Kiriath Arba. This Arba was the chief man among the Anakim. According to the translation provided by the New American Bible, Hebron was formerly called Kiriath Arba for Arba, who was the greatest among the Anakim. According to the Jewish Bible's new translation, the Tanakh, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. Arba was the great man among the Anakites. The translation problem stems from the fact that the Hebrew text describes Arba as the Ish Gadol of the Anakim. Ish is unambiguously understood to refer to a male person when translated literally, whereas Gadol has the potential to mean either big or large or great. So when this descriptive epithet was applied to Arba, was it meant to imply that he was a large man, a Goliath, or that he was a great man, an exceptional leader? While I was reading and rereading this verse, it suddenly occurred to me that I had come across the term Ish Gadol, in exactly this context before, in the writings of the Sumerians. Because in their culture, the title of king was referred to as Lu.gal, which literally translates to man plus big great, equal to Ishgadol. And just like in Hebrew, the term had its ambiguous double meaning of big man or king, which is equivalent to great. And at this point, another thought occurred to me. Is there any possibility that there is no ambiguity? Is this Arba, a descendant of the Anunnaki, a demigod who was both big and powerful? A crown was added to the symbol for Lu in the pictograph that served as the basis for the cuneiform signs for Lugal, figure 73, but the symbol itself does not convey any information about the object's dimensions. 
We do not have a picture of Arba, whose name literally means he who is for, but we do have ancient depictions of Sumerian kings, and during the early dynastic period, they were depicted as big fellows. However, we do not have a picture of Arba. Other examples from Ur date back to around 2600 BC and are found on a wooden box that is referred to as the Standard of Ur. This box has panels on both of its sides, with one panel, called the War Panel, showing a scene of horse-drawn chariots and marching soldiers, and the other panel, called the Peace Panel, showing civilian activities and banqueting the person who is most noticeable, due to his large size, is the king, who is known as the Nephilim king. It may be important to mention the fact that when the Israelites decided that they needed a king, Saul was selected as the candidate because, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder and upward. This is why Saul was chosen. See also Samuel 10.23. There were certainly some kings in antiquity who were not gigantic in stature. The Canaanite big one, also known as Og the king of Bashan, was such an outlier that the Bible draws attention to him specifically because of this. Because he was Izbegadol Arba, who was descended from the Anakim and the Anunnaki, stood out. Despite the fact that he was not a king, the demigod Adapa, who was Enki's son, was described as being large and robust. If such big man demigods inherited that genetic trait from their divine parents, then one would expect depictions of gods and men to also show the deities as relatively giant-like, and this was actually the case. If such big man demigods inherited that genetic trait from their divine parents, then they would have been demigods. It is possible to observe this, for instance, in a depiction from Ur that dates back to the third millennium and shows a naked Lugal pouring a libation over a goddess who is even larger than the people who are carrying offerings behind him. The same ratio of king to deity can also be seen in a depiction of a big Hittite king offering a libation to an even bigger god named Teshub. These depictions were discovered in Elam. One discovers that such heftiness was not exclusive to male gods. The goddess Ninma Ninhasag, who in her old age was known as the cow, was depicted as having a lot of body fat. Even when she was younger, the goddess Bau, who was married to the god Ninurta, was more well known for her enormous size. Her epithet was Gula, which literally translates to the big one. Both before and after the flood, there were, in point of fact, gigantic creatures roaming the earth. We are fortunate that the significant archaeological discoveries made over the past two centuries have provided us with the ability to recognize them and bring them to life even as they are passing away. In spite of the fact that the gibberim, which are described as heroes or mighty men, also known as demigods, continued into post-diluvial times, the Bible makes very little mention of them until the Israelites return to Canaan. The Anakim and a subgroup called Rephaim, a term that might mean healers, are mentioned in the Bible for the first time when Moses was recounting who had inhabited Canaan. According to Deuteronomy 2.11, as Anakim are considered. After the deluge, those lands were repopulated by a wide variety of tribe nations, with the exception of certain children of Anak. It is of them 
that the whole earth was overspread, the Bible stated as it launched a list of their descendant nations. Genesis chapter 10. According to the Bible, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japhet, who had survived the deluge with their wives, were the ones responsible for the re-emergence of humankind. And on that lengthy and exhaustive list, there is only one hero by the name of Nimrod to be found. Nimrod, who descended from Kish, also spelt Cush, was a mighty hunter by the grace of Yahweh. According to the verses from Genesis that we have already cited, he was the first hero in the land. Kish is spelt incorrectly as Cush. We mentioned earlier the scholarly assumption that Nimrod, whose domains included Erech in the land of Shinar, was the famous Sumerian Gilgamesh, king of Erech, Uruk. However, it turned out that this assumption was incorrect. The discovery and deciphering of the cuneiform tablets led to this assumption. However, the Hebrew epithets that were applied to Nimrod, such as a gibor, a hero, and a mighty hunter, unmistakably link him to the plural gibberim that are mentioned in Genesis 6-4 and therefore identify him as one of the demigods who have continued on in the lineage. In the art of the Sumerians, Enlil is shown to be the one who bestowed upon humanity the ability to shoot a bow and arrow for hunting. The claim that Nimrod was brought forth in Kish can serve as a valuable clue regarding his identity. I believe that it is hiding among the demigods associated with the god Ninurta without being acknowledged. There is a clear connection made here between these verses in the Bible and the Sumerian king list in which it is written with reference to the post-diluvial period. After the worst of the flood had passed, when the kingship was brought down from its perch in heaven once more, Kish was the seat of the kingship. Kish was not one of the pre-diluvial cities that were rebuilt exactly where they had been once Mesopotamia was habitable again. Rather, it was a brand new city that was intended to serve as a neutral capital and was founded after the creation of separate regions for the competing Anunnaki clans. Kish was named after the god Kish, who was believed to have been the architect of the original city. The catastrophic event known as the Deluge occurred when the ice sheet that covered Antarctica broke apart, inexorably submerging the Abzu nation along with its gold mining facilities in southeast Africa. The Deluge was caused by the collapse of the ice sheet that covered Antarctica. However, as the laws of nature would have it, the catastrophe that wiped out one side of the planet had positive effects on the other side of the planet. The powerful avalanche of water that occurred in the lands beyond the seas, which we now know as South America, unearthed extremely rich veins of gold in the mountains that we now refer to as the Andes and filled riverbeds with gold nuggets that were easy to collect. Because of this, Nibiru was able to acquire the gold it required without having to endure the arduous process of mining for it. Ishka Adad, Enlil's son, was dispatched to take charge of the Golden Territory so that Enki wouldn't have to. Control of the repopulated Olden lands became a pressing issue for the deprived Enki clan as a result. Ninmar's suggestion to create distinct regions and clearly delineated territories was an attempt to broker peace between the two factions. If the 1,200-year reign of Gar is accurate, then he belongs in the same category as the pre-Diluvian biblical patriarchs, who each lived almost 1,000 years, 
and his immediate successors, who were somewhat ahead of Noah's sons, Shem lived to 600, in terms of longevity. If Garfur-Ur was a demigod named Gibor, then an age of Shon 200 years could be explained for his case. In the same vein, the 13th king of Kish, Itana, is said to have reigned for 1,560 years, and the king list entry for him includes the following lengthy notation. A shepherd, he who to heaven ascended, who consolidated the countries. In this particular instance, the royal notation is supported by newly discovered literature, such as an ancient text composed of two tablets that is associated with the Etana legend. This is because he was, in fact, a king who ascended to heaven. Etana, the benevolent ruler, was depressed because he did not have a male heir. This was caused by difficulties his wife experienced during her pregnancy, which could only be remedied by the heavenly plant of birth. Therefore, he prayed to his patron god, Utu or Shamash, asking for assistance in acquiring it. Shamash led him to a location known as the Eagle's Pit, and after they overcame a number of challenges, the Eagle carried Etana aloft to the location known as the Gate of Anu's Heaven. As they ascended to higher and higher altitudes, the globe below them became a smaller and smaller silhouette. After he had successfully carried Itana for one Beru, the eagle addresses both him and Itana, saying, Behold, my good friend, this is how the land looks. Take a look at the sea that is visible from the side of the mountain house. The land is now just a hill. The vast ocean can be compared to a bathtub. The eagle continued to urge Itana to look down as it ascended a second Beru, which is both a unit of distance and a measure of the degrees of the celestial arc. My dear companion, take a look at how the planet appears from space. The land has taken on the appearance of a furrow. The expansive ocean can be compared to a bread basket. After the eagle had carried him aloft a third Beru, the archaeological site turned into a gardener's ditch. And then, as they continued to climb, the earth vanished from view all of a sudden, and the terrified Itana later remarked, As I glanced around, the land had disappeared. One telling of the legend has it that Itana and the eagle passed through the gate of Anu. Another account has it that Itana became concerned and yelled to the eagle, I am looking for the earth, but I cannot see it. In his terror, he yelled at the eagle, I cannot proceed any further to the heavens, take the path that leads back. The eagle returned to earth after hearing the cries of Etana, who was laying slumped on the eagle's wings, but, according to this version, Etana and the eagle made a second attempt to fly away from the planet. It appears that their plan was successful because the next king of Kish, Bali, is known to have been referred to as the son of Etana. He only ruled for a short period of 400 or 410 years. On cylinder seals, ancient artists depicted the story of Etana. One of these seals begins with the eagle in its pit, and another depicts Etana hovering between the earth, p seven dots, and the moon, detailed by its crescent. The story is instructive in multiple ways, including the following. It corroborates what many other texts suggest which is that comings and goings between Earth and Nibiru were more frequent than once every 3,600 years. 
It also describes realistically a flight out to space with a diminishing Earth in sight. The story does not specify whether Etana was a mortal or a demigod, but it is reasonable to assume that he was the latter because, if he had been a mortal, he would not have been permitted to take space flights, and he would not have been able to rule for an alleged millennium and a half. The fact that a later inscription prefixes Etana's name with the Dingir, determinative, reinforces a conclusion that Etana indeed was divinely engendered, and a notation in another text that Etana was of the same pure seed as Adapa had been can serve as a clue as to who the father was. Etana's name was prefixed with the Dingir determinative because of a later inscription. When we reach the 16th king, Enmanunna, who ruled for one two hundred years and was followed by his two sons with mortal-like reigns of 140 and 305 years. The possibility that the 23 kings who reigned in Kish alternated between demigods and their mortal offspring comes to mind. This is especially the case when we consider that Enmanunna's sons both had mortal-like reigns. After that, some kings ruled for 900 and 1-200 years, respectively, and then Enmibara.g.si who carried away as spoil the weapons of Elam, became king and ruled for 900 years. Even though the Shah counts no longer exist, the two theophoric names ring a bell. They place these post-diluvial kings in the same name category as the pre-diluvial ones of the WB tablets and the Barossus list, who had gods as parents. This is because both of these theophoric names refer to the gods who were their parents. The name Enmenbarajesi was discovered inscribed on an archaeological artifact, a stone vase that is now housed in the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. Additionally, Elam, whose weapons he took as spoils, was a historically verified kingdom. Together, these two facts lend a historical dimension to the Kish list. The list of 23 kings of Kish who reigned a total of 24,510 years, three months, and three and a half days was completed by Akka, son of Enmebaragesi, who ruled for 629 years. This amounts to approximately four millennia if divided by six, but only four centuries if reduced by 60. The Sumerian kingship was eventually relocated to Uruk at that time. The seat of central kingship was moved from Kish to Uruk at some point around the year 3000 BC, and right off the bat, we don't need to guess anymore who reigned there, as King List states the following about the first king of Uruk. The name of the first king of Uruk was Uruk-Namu, Meskiag. Gasher, son of Dutu, rose to the position of high priest and king in Uruk, where he ruled for a total of 324 years. I am Kiag, Mesgasher submerged himself in the water and travelled to the mountainous region. Even though he was obviously a demigod and was fathered by the god Utu Shamash, he was only given a lifespan of 324 years, which is also a number that is divisible by six, this should be noted. And there is no explanation given for why a full-fledged demigod would have such a short reign. The meaning of his name, which was handy dexterous, was conveyed through his name. Because no other text pertaining to Meskiagasha has been discovered, all we can do is speculate that the seas he traversed in order to reach a mountain and the land of Elam, respectively, were the Persian Gulf, also known as the Lower Sea.
and that the journey was significant enough to merit its mention in the quoted passage. Uruk, also known as Erech in the Bible, was originally not intended to be a city but rather a resting place for the gods Anu and Antu when they came to earth around 4000 BC for a state visit. When they left, Anu presented it as a gift to his great-granddaughter Irnini, who was later given the nickname and became better known as Inanna, Chi Anu's beloved, also known as Ishtar. The great god list ascribes more than 100 different epithets to her, including ambitious and enterprising. Inanna outwitted the womanizer Enki and was able to coerce him into giving her more than a hundred me, also known as divine formulas, which were required to turn Uruk into a major city. Enmerka, the subsequent king of Uruk, was tasked with the responsibility of actually transforming Uruk into a major city. His name appears on the Sumerian king list as the one who built Uruk. Archaeological evidence suggests that he was the one who built the city's first protective walls and expanded the Ianna temple into a sacred precinct worthy of a great goddess, the goddess Inanna. Additionally, he is credited with expanding the Ianna temple into a sacred precinct worthy of the Ianna temple. A procession of worshippers bringing offerings to the mistress of Uruk is depicted on an exquisitely carved alabaster vase from Uruk, which is one of the most prized objects in the Iraq Museum in Baghdad. The procession is led by a giant like naked king. In King List, Enmerka is referred to as the son of Meskiagasha, and he ruled for 420 years, which is almost a century longer than his demigod father did. The tale of Enmerka and the Lord of Arata is the longest and most historically significant of the epic tales that focus on him. Within this story, one of the revelations that is presented most clearly and consistently is that the god Utu Shamash was Enmerka's adoptive father. This is one of the reasons why so much more is known about him than other people. Because of this, he became a direct relative of Utu's sister Inanna, rather than merely a worshipper of her, and one can find an explanation for enigmatic journeys to a distant kingdom by looking at this fact. The intention behind the creation of the four regions was to find a way to bring peace back to the Anunnaki clans through the implementation of a let each one have his own arrangement. The Tigris-Euphrates plain, which was ruled by the Enlilites, was the first region, and Africa, which was ruled by the Enkiites, was the second region. Enlil's granddaughter Inanna Ishtar and the shepherd god Dumuzi who was Enki's youngest son but only a half-brother of Marduk, were chosen for the purpose of enhancing peace through intermarriage. This was another idea that was proposed to improve the situation. Several different texts contain references that suggest the unassigned third region, which was the valley of the Indus River, was supposed to be a dowry for the young couple. The spaceport in the Sinai Peninsula served as the location of the fourth region, which was off-limits to people. One of the earliest instances of arranged marriages on Earth is recorded in a story about Enki and Ninhasag. Their lovemaking resulted in the birth of only females, and the two then spent time matching them with spouses. Arranged marriages were a part of the Anunnaki record, both on Nibiru and on Earth. As fate would have it, the young versions of Inanna and Dumuzi not only get along but also fall in love with one another. Their passionate love and lovemaking are described in lengthy poems, most of which were written by Inanna, 
earning her the reputation of being known as the goddess of love. They were engaged to be married at the time. The poems also revealed Inanna's ambition to become, through the marriage, mistress of Egypt, which alarmed Enki's son, Marduk-Ra. His efforts to disrupt the marriage led to the death by drowning of Dumuzi, which Marduk-Ra claimed to have done unintentionally. Inanna, distraught and enraged, engaged in fierce battles against Marduk and Ra, thereby establishing her reputation as a goddess of war. In the Wars of Gods and Men, we refer to these conflicts as the Pyramid Wars. They lasted for a number of years and were only resolved when Marduk was first imprisoned and then banished. The great gods endeavoured to bring some measure of comfort to Inanna by bestowing upon her sole dominion over the distant kingdom of Arata. This kingdom was located to the east of Elam Iran and beyond seven mountain ranges. In the book, The Stairway to Heaven, I made the hypothesis that the kingdom of Arata was the third region, which is now known as the Indus Valley Civilization, with its center, which archaeologists refer to as Harappa, located on the significant 30th parallel north. Because of this, it was the final destination of the Meskiagasha Voyage, and it was also the setting for the significant events that occurred afterwards. The stories of Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata were told against the backdrop of an unusual circumstance that existed in the city of Uruk and the kingdom of Arata, both of which worshipped the goddess Inanna. Furthermore, the unnamed king of Arata is referred to multiple times as a seed implanted in the womb by Dumuzi which is a statement that is so cryptic that it leaves one guessing not only about who the mother was, but also about whether or not post-mortem artificial insemination was involved. An instance of such artificial insemination is recorded in Egyptian tales of the gods, when the god Thoth extracted semen from the phallus of the dead and dismembered Osiris, and impregnated with it Isis, the wife of Osiris, who then gave birth to the god Horus. In this story, Osiris's wife, Isis, gave birth to the god Horus. Calling himself Sumer's junior Enlil, Enmerkar sought to establish superiority for Uruk by refurbishing and enlarging the olden temple of Anu, the Iana, as Inanna's principal shrine, and by placing Arata in second-class status by forcing it to send to Uruk contributions of precious stones, lapis lazuli and carnelian, gold and silver, bronze and laid. Enmerkar's heart grew heavy when Arata, which the text describes as a highland place of silver and lapis lazuli, delivered the tribute. He then sent his ambassador to Arata with a new demand, which was to let Arata submit to Uruk, or else there would be war. However, the king of Arata, who may have resembled this statue that was discovered in Harappa, was speaking in an unintelligible language, which indicated that he was unable to comprehend what the emissary was saying. Undeterred, Enmerka sought the assistance of Nidaba, the goddess of writing, in order to inscribe a written message to Arata on a clay tablet in a language that its king would understand. He then sent this message along with another special emissary. The text suggests that this emissary flew over to Arata, the herald flapped his wings, and in no time crossed the mountains and reached Arata. Both the emissary's gestures and the inscribed clay tablet, which was a new experience for the king of Arata, communicated Uruk's threat. 
but the king of Arata put his faith in Inanna, proclaiming, Inanna, mistress of lands, has not abandoned her house in Arata, has not handed over Arata to Uruk. Despite his assertion, the conflict between the two sides remained unresolved. Following that event, Inanna's presence was felt in both locations for some time, and she travelled between them in her boat of heaven. She piloted her aircraft on occasion while dressed in the uniform of a pilot, and on other occasions her personal pilot, Nungal, was the one who flew it. However, prolonged droughts that wreaked havoc on Arata's grain-based economy, combined with Suma's strategic location, allowed Uruk to emerge victorious in the end. The subsequent king of Uruk, Lugalbanda, comes to the forefront of several additional heroic tales revolving around Enmerkar. The king list makes light of Lugalbanda's long reign by stating, Divine Lugalbanda, a shepherd reigned for 1,200 years. However, considerably more information is provided about him in texts such as Lugalbanda and Enmerkar, Lugalbanda and Mount Hurum, and Lugalbanda in the Mountain Darkness. These are texts that describe different heroic episodes that could have been segments of an all-encompassing text known as the Epic of Lugalbanda, modelled after the Epic of Gilgamesh. In one of the stories, Lugalbanda serves as one of several commanders who accompany Enmerkar on a military campaign against Arata. This particular tale takes place in the land of Arata. Lugalbanda becomes ill just as they reach Mount Hurum while they are on their journey. When his companions' attempts to help him are unsuccessful, they abandon him to die with the intention of retrieving his body when they next come back together. But the gods of Uruk, led by Inanna, hear Lugalbanda's prayers. Inanna restores his vitality by using stones that emit light and stones that make strong, and he does not pass away. He eventually finds himself lost in the woods where he must defend himself against snarling wild animals, pythons and scorpions. After what seems like an eternity, he makes his way back to Uruk, presumably because the tablet is broken here. In another version of the story, he is sent from Enmerkar in Uruk to Inanna in Arata in order to ask for her assistance in resolving the water crisis in Uruk. However, the segment of this version that I found to be the most interesting depicts Lugalbanda, in the role of a special emissary of Enmerkar to the king of Arata. His way was blocked at a vital mountain pass by the Anzu Mushena monster bird, whose teeth are like those of a sharkfish and its claws like a lion's, and who can hunt down and carry a bull. He was sent alone on a hush-hush mission with a secret message that he had to memorize. The Anzu bird claims that Enlil placed him there as gatekeeper, and he challenges Lugalbanda to verify his identity. The Anzu bird is consistently defined in the text by the determinative mushan, which means bird. This definition is used throughout the text. If you are a god, then I will reveal the secret word to you, and out of friendship I will let you into the house. If you are a Lulu, you should... I will decide what happens to you, because... In the mountainous region, there is to be no conflict of any kind. Lugalbanda responded with his own pun in response to the use of the pre-Diluvian term lu-lu for the word man. 
Lugalbanda may need clarification on the use of this term. He made this statement in reference to the holy district of Uruk. I was born in Mushin, in the Lalu region, Ansu. I was born in what is known as the Great Precinct. Immediately after that, Lugalbanda, he of beloved seed, stretched out his hand and announced, Am I a divine being like Shara, Inanna's cherished child and namesake? Multiple texts refer to the god Shara as Inanna's son. However, there is never any explanation as to who Shara's biological father was. It has been hypothesized that he was conceived during Anu's visit to Earth. The tale of Zu refers to Shara as the firstborn of Ishtar, despite the fact that it acknowledges the existence of other children who are not specifically named. However, the king of Arata, who may have resembled this statue that was discovered in Harappa, was speaking in an unintelligible language, which indicated that he was unable to comprehend what the emissary was saying. Undeterred, Enmerka sought the assistance of Nidaba, the goddess of writing, in order to inscribe a written message to Arata on a clay tablet in a language that its king would understand. He then sent this message along with another special emissary. The text suggests that this emissary flew over to Arata. The herald flapped his wings and in no time crossed the mountains and reached Arata. Both the emissary's gestures and the inscribed clay tablet, which was a new experience for the king of Arata, communicated Uruk's threat. But the king of Arata put his faith in Inanna, proclaiming, Inanna, mistress of lands, has not abandoned her house in Arata, has not handed over Arata to Uruk. Despite his assertion, the conflict between the two sides remained unresolved. Following that event, Inanna's presence was felt in both locations for some time, and she travelled between them in her boat of heaven. She piloted her aircraft on occasion while dressed in the uniform of a pilot, and on other occasions, her personal pilot, Nungal, was the one who flew it. However, prolonged droughts that wreaked havoc on Arata's grain-based economy, combined with Suma's strategic location, allowed Uruk to emerge victorious in the end. The subsequent king of Uruk, Lugalbanda, comes to the forefront of several additional heroic tales revolving around Enmerkar. The king list makes light of Lugalbanda's long reign by stating, Divine Lugalbanda, a shepherd, reigned for 1,200 years. However, considerably more information is provided about him in texts such as Lugalbanda and Enmerkar, Lugalbanda and Mount Hurum, and Lugalbanda in the Mountain Darkness. These are texts that describe different heroic episodes that could have been segments of an all-encompassing text known as the Epic of Lugalbanda, modelled after the Epic of Gilgamesh. In one of the stories, Lugalbanda serves as one of several commanders who accompany Enmerkar on a military campaign against Arata. This particular tale takes place in the land of Arata. Lugalbanda becomes ill just as they reach Mount Hurum while they are on their journey. When his companions' attempts to help him are unsuccessful, they abandon him to die with the intention of retrieving his body when they next come back together. But the gods of Uruk, led by Inanna, hear Lugalbanda's prayers. Inanna restores his vitality by using stones that emit light and stones that make strong, and he does not pass away. He eventually finds himself lost in the woods where he must defend himself against snarling wild animals 
pythons, and scorpions. After what seems like an eternity, he makes his way back to Uruk, presumably because the tablet is broken here. In another version of the story, he is sent from Enmerkar in Uruk to Inanna in Arata in order to ask for her assistance in resolving the water crisis in Uruk. However, the segment of this version that I found to be the most interesting depicts Lugalbanda in the role of a special emissary of Enmerkar to the king of Arata. His way was blocked at a vital mountain pass by the Anzu Mushena monster bird, whose teeth are like those of a sharkfish and its claws like a lion's, and who can hunt down and carry a bull. He was sent alone on a hush-hush mission with a secret message that he had to memorize. The Anzu bird claims that Enlil placed him there as gatekeeper, and he challenges Lugalbanda to verify his identity. The Anzu bird is consistently defined in the text by the determinative mushan, which means bird. This definition is used throughout the text. If you are a god, then I will reveal the secret word to you, and out of friendship I will let you into the house. If you are a lulu, you should... I will decide what happens to you, because... In the mountainous region, there is to be no conflict of any kind. Lugalbanda responded with his own pun in response to the use of the pre-Diluvian term Lulu for the word man. Lugalbanda may need clarification on the use of this term. He made this statement in reference to the holy district of Uruk. I was born in Mushan, in the Lalu region, Ansu. I was born in what is known as the Great Precinct. Immediately after that, Lugalbanda, he of beloved seed, stretched out his hand and announced, Am I a divine being like Shara, Inanna's cherished child and namesake? Multiple texts refer to the god Shara as Inanna's son. However, there is never any explanation as to who Shara's biological father was. It has been hypothesized that he was conceived during Anu's visit to Earth. The tale of Zu refers to Shara as the firstborn of Ishtar, despite the fact that it acknowledges the existence of other children who are not specifically named. There is no indication that Inanna's sexual encounters with Dumuzi resulted in the birth of a child. It is well known that after Dumuzi's passing, Inanna introduced the ritual of a sacred marriage, in which a male of her choosing, as often as not the king, would spend a betrothal night with her on the anniversary of Dumuzi's passing. However, there is no indication that this ritual resulted in the birth of a child. It is therefore unknown who Lugalbanda's father was. However, the fact that his name contains the word Lugal, meaning king, indicates that he may have come from a royal family. It is noteworthy that the meaning of the name Lugalbanda is best captured by the nickname Shorty, because that is what his name literally meant. Lugal and king. Banda, Amma, of lesser or shorter stature. In this respect, he appears to have been more like his mother than the other demigods, who were typically much larger than him. The archaeologists took a picture of themselves with the life-size statue of Inanna that was discovered at a site called Mari. When they looked at the photo, they noticed that Inanna appeared to be the shortest of the group. Whoever Lugalbanda's biological father was, the fact that a goddess named Inanna gave birth to him earned him the prefix Dingir before his name.
This also qualified him to become the consort of another goddess named Ninsen. His name, along with the Dingir determinative, is what brings the Inanna entries on Tablet Shi of the Great God List to a close. In addition, he is given the honor of beginning Tablet 5, which is then followed by D. Ninsen Dam Bisal, which translates to Divine Ninsen, female, his spouse, as well as the names of their children and various court attendants. This brings us to the greatest epic tale of demigods and the search for immortality, as well as the possibility that there is physical evidence that could prove it all. In Genesis 11.1, the Bible states that when people started to resettle the earth after the deluge, all of humanity spoke the same language. Every single thing on earth spoke the same language and used the same type of words. It came to pass at that time when the people traveling from the east found a plain in the land of Shinar, and there they settled. However, after that, they began to build a city and a tower whose head will reach heaven. Yahweh, after having come down to see the city and the tower, became concerned and said, Let us come down and confound there their language, so that they may not understand each other's speech. This was done to put a stop to such ambitions on the part of mankind. It was because people were building the Tower of Babel that Yahweh decided to confuse mankind's language and scatter them from there over the face of the whole earth. The Bible then explains this by using a wordplay based on the similarity between the Hebrew verb BLL, pass, confuse, mix up, and the name of the city, Babel, Gasus Babylon. It says, therefore is the name of it Babel, for there did Yahweh BLL, or confuse, the language of the earth. Alexander Polyhister, a historian from Greece, is quoted in Berossus and other sources as saying that before the construction of a large and lofty tower, all of humanity spoke the same language. It is a reasonable assumption to make that immediately following the Great Flood, all of humanity, which descended from Noah's three sons, would have spoken the same language. In point of fact, this could be the reason why some of the earliest terms and names in Egyptian sound like Hebrew. The word for gods was netru, which can also be translated as guardians. This word is related to the Hebrew ntr, which means to guard or watch. Ta, the name of the chief god, means he who develops or creates. And it is related to the Hebrew verb pth, which also has a meaning that is related to this concept. The same is true for the name Nut, which derives from the verb nth, which means to spread a canopy. Geb, which means he who heaps up, originates from the verb gbb. The Bible goes on to explain that the mixing of tongues was actually an intentional act carried out by God. Just imagine discovering evidence for that in one of the Enmerkar texts. The Sumerian text made the following observation when it reported that the emissaries sent by Enmerkar and the king of Arata were unable to understand each other. Once upon a time, praise was offered to Enlil by everyone on earth, in every language they spoke, simultaneously and in unison. But then Enki, who was pitting king against king and prince against prince, put in their mouths a confused tongue, and as a result, the language of humanity became confused. The Enmerka epics attribute the deed to Enki as the perpetrator, 